Good morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wertman coming to you live from our new studio. Uh, we're still working on some things, but uh, we are going to do today's show live Q&A with uh, Chris Kessel here from the new uh, office, uh, studio, etc. And um, excited to, to do today's show here and to have uh, our friend of the show, Chris Kessel, joining us for this live Q&A. And about to, right before I bring Chris on, I just want to throw up this graphic for you. Um, if you want to text questions into the show, you can do so at one 789 We've already had some questions coming in, uh, texted in to that number. You can email questions to team at wrk.mn, or you can send Twitter DM questions to at Daniel Workman. We'll throw this graphic up periodically throughout the show. We've already had quite a few questions come in and uh, we're going to get started uh, with some of those questions and at the same time bring Chris uh, on to the show as we're going to kind of talk through a bunch of these questions. Hot topic this week has been uh, U.S. Soccer, the Development Academy, etc. Just wanted to uh, get you know some of your thoughts before we jump into the the questions uh chris in terms of, of what you're what you're hearing Um, yeah, it is, it's, it, the whole thing from a timeline perspective and I, I, something I want to get into in just a little bit is, was curious. Um, there, there are reports out that just don't support the, the information U S soccer put out, um, a few days ago when they made the announcement. And then yesterday, the, the letter from CEO, Will Wilson, you know, kind of uh, doesn't support some of that either. Um, you know, so we'll, you know, we'll see. But uh, we'll, like I said, I, I, I want to get into that in just a little bit. Uh, but I uh, wanted to bring in our first question. Um, and uh, the, the question is, given the latest news, do you think U.S. soccer will make the change from birth year back to using August 1st to July 31st um, as the age, great, age group guidelines? It was rumored a few months ago. Uh, what, are your, um, what are your thoughts there? 
think that uh, the people that were most affected by it, who were actually concerned about making sure that those kids affected have figured out solutions. They just <clears throat> play those kids up in age group so they can play with their friends from school where regardless of whether they're ready or not, you know, or however they do it, they just play by grade level as an entire organization. You know, there's just all kinds of solutions out there. I think that this would, and this is what I think the thinking is at this point that, uh, it, it would just cause the same exact set of problems that happened a few years ago. And there's no reason to go back. And um, I think that that's from talking to some people. I think that that's the thinking that will prevail. Hopefully that will prevail because another massive shift like that, you know, at the youngest age groups will be ridiculous, just like the first switch was ridiculous. And I think that's where we'll end up at. So you think you think we stay the same that we um, that that we they won't make the shift from birth year back to August this basically the academic school year calendar right yeah I think we'll stay the same so um, the the it's not really a follow up question but just some of their uh, thoughts here was um, their opinion was that this would allow kids to play with their classmates help retain kids in the game increasing the bottom of the pyramid I think we focus too much on elite not enough on building grassroots and promoting unstructured neighborhood play um, I I'm I'm may sound a bit harsh here but. I think the parents make a way bigger deal out of this than the kids do. Um, and I just, I don't understand why it's a big deal in the first place. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe it's just because uh, it's never been important to me. Like the whole, you know, cause there's like my kids, um, you know, one was affected by the, uh, the birth year, uh, the other one wasn't, but the the one that was affected wasn't even old enough when the effect went into change. So it it never really kind of uh, did anything for me. And and I've always been one in terms of grouping kids. Uh, have never been a strict believer in um, you know strict uh, placement based on you know your, your birth year. Cause some kids are maybe really, really good and need to play up an age group anyway. So this idea of purity at having, you know, this one set of kids at 12, you know, August 1st to, to, to July 31st versus January 1st to December 31st. I don't know. I just, I just never thought it was a big deal. I, I know it. I know at the time it was because there was so much change and people were whatever but like i don't ever when i'm out around the fields i don't ever hear anyone talking about this anymore so um to go back i you know i'm kind of with you i just don't know that they want to i don't know that they want to deal with um you know the the headaches of going back i i understand and i'm i'm empathetic towards um those who you know might uh feel differently but um you know i i just i don't i don't know i don't see it as a um as that big a deal at least for me um okay so nick go ahead while i'm pulling up the next question oh no 
No, I'm 100% agreement with you. And basically, I think that the people out there that really wanted their kids to play with other with the with a certain kid, um, if they were in an organization, if they're in organizations that are kid centric, they let them play with them. I mean, it's just, you know, that's the solution. You know, every kid doesn't want to necessarily have a group of kids that they want to play with. But if look, if if I have a kid, a parent who shows up and said, man, you know, little Johnny wants to play with, you know, little James and well, but they're, you know, a year apart and they'd make that make them a U9 instead of U8. Oh, well, you know, but they go to school. All right. Well, we'll just put them on a team. I mean, problem solved. Like, I don't, it's, this isn't, this isn't a big deal. Like if, as long as organizations are kid centric, you know, and that's, I think right now that's where maybe a lot of the people that have problems are, you know, they're in organizations that are kids are not kid centric. They're rule centric or winning centric or, you know, whatever. But if you are not worried about making sure that you put the absolute best team possible on the field, you know, at U6, <laughs> then you'll let a kid play in an age group with their friends. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think that there are um, decisions at the local level that you can make that, you know, can address this issue without uh, massive upheaval, upheaval across the country. nobody is stopping you from running your community club with it being by grade level. Like there, there is no person rule organization that's stopping you from going all the fourth graders play for that team. You know, if you have a a team, you know, an Oh nine team and it's all, and you have a bunch of, you know, third and fourth graders or whatever that would be. And you, have to play them in the U12 league, you know, because some of them are, I mean, some of them happen to be 08s because they're, you know, fourth graders instead of the 09 league. Okay, you play in the 08 league, but they're all fourth graders. You made that decision. Nobody's stopping you. Like, just go and do it. Right. If you want, if you think yeah. that your organization absolutely has that, just go do it. Nobody's stopping you. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. I, I, I just, I think, I think sometimes in situations like this, now there's a lot of, a lot of topics we're going to get to today that, uh, you know, do need the Federation to help, uh, or to lead, et cetera. In, in this area, I think, I think there are answers locally, as you pointed out so well there, you know, if you, if you feel like fourth graders need to play together, then stack the team with fourth graders and play them in whatever age bracket they have to play in. So if the oldest kids are, um, you know, 2009s and the younger kids are 2010s, then you know what? That's what you do. You go play them at the 2009 age bracket and you, and, and you deal with it. It's at that point, you know, you're you're not talking about uh, an age gap disparity. That's going to be that large. If you've got some, 2010s playing with the 2009s and maybe a six month, no more than 12 month age gap. And look, I've seen plenty of 2010s who can 
ball their way through uh, against 2009s without, you know, um, any, uh, you know, issues. So this idea of, of the, of the, um, you know, players not being able to handle it. I, I think, you know, obviously case by case, some kids may not be able to, and that's a decision you'd have to make. But I, I do think there are things you can do uh, on your own uh, to, to solve this. And I think as much as possible, you know, to, to me, uh, just from a general perspective, as much as you can solve on your own, I think U.S. soccer is showing you're better off taking that on yourself rather than trying to wait on them to fix it for you because they're probably not going to. So, um, you know, as much as you can control, like you, like you pointed out, find ways to work within the rules, work around the rules. If, 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 you're, if you have an in-house league and you're not going to play anybody else and everything's self-contained, then, you know, and you want to do it grade level, then that, that should never even be an issue for you. Yeah. So um, next question, with the pay-to-play issue in youth soccer, how do you feel if a club views some players around the age of 14 to 17 capable of playing at a higher level um, in, in terms of putting them into adult teams that play in a competitive league like a, an elite amateur one? Uh, and they use the example of USASA. So basically, they're... Their question is, how do you feel about clubs moving, uh, you know, the, the better players that are 14 to 17 um, into playing in adult competitions is, is their basic answer. I'll let you go. I have an answer uh, uh, that I, I'll give uh, after yours, but curious what your thoughts are with that. It's absolutely ridiculous if you're not doing it. How about we start there? <clears throat> if the if your point, you know, that's one of the like that's one of the things that I find so awesome about scholastic soccer. You know, we were just talking about kids maybe playing up six months, you know, against kids six months, twelve more than them. When you're in sixth grade, you're playing against eighth graders. And when you're in ninth grade, you're playing against 17, 18 year old you know, seniors, when you're 16, 17 years old, you should absolutely be playing in the adult league, you know, in addition to your, your age group, you know, there, there's no reason why the best players aren't playing in the, the adult league. And this isn't even necessarily having to play against, you know, in the MPSL, your U17 team should be playing in the adult league. You know, against grown men, it, like you, you, you have to, you have to go and push yourself against people that are just physically bigger, stronger, faster than you. You might not be faster. 17 year olds really fast, but, you know, that are just technically experienced and more savvy, you know, because people, this is the thing that I, I just can't wrap my head around this thing that people think that act like they don't think they act like as soon as you're done being a college player that you're no longer any good like you know the the men your local men's league is full of guys that are 25 to 29 30 31 32 that are former college players it's full of it 
you know, there's two or three generations of local guys that played college soccer playing in your local men's league that are still in tip top shape and the prime of their athletic career. You know, just go and put your U 17s in the, in the men's league and, and watch them get washed. Sometimes they might be out there destroying the other U 17s, but they're out there playing against grown men that know how to play and have been playing together for five, six, seven, eight, nine years. They need that experience. And, you know, that's what I think is, is a <clears throat> missing key component of the development process. We don't have the ability for most players to break through to the first team. You know, most youth players in the United States don't play for a team, you know, for a club that has a first team. You have to give them that experience. Everywhere else in the world, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids are breaking through into the first team. You know, where they're playing U23, you know, uh, soccer. And that just isn't something that can happen here. So the we have to make sure that these kids have that same kind of developmental process, you know, piece of their process that's missing. And you have to create that for them. And playing in adult leagues, playing in the MPSL or playing in, you know, UPSL or whatever it is the best situation. I mean, if you and if you don't have that, obviously, then you play in your local adult league. You get them to play in there. So I one hundred thousand million percent agree with uh, your your view there. I, um, I I've seen this with my oldest son since the age of ten. He has been playing uh, right now. They're not playing because of, of the uh, pandemic. But uh, when, when it's not a crisis, he plays pretty much every Saturday when he's in town uh, with this group of adult uh, Latinos and, and others uh, from around the community. Um, since the age of 10 and these, these are grown men. So some of them are, you know, uh, 18, some of them are in their twenties, some of them are thirties, forties. I mean, we got, we got a couple guys that are in their fifties that come out and play. Um, he's been playing with them, um, for, I think this summer will be five years now. And, um, and he, he also has played, um, with older groups, uh, when he's been in Europe, uh, he's done the, the same thing, um, uh, playing up inside of the club that he plays at. And then he's also played, uh, um, with an adult, uh, Latino team, um, in, in a, in a local league as well. And so I'm just a big believer in, in that experience. Uh, it, there, there is nothing that uh, will help uh, progress a player's development than playing with older players. Um, you pick up things from them. It, it, there is, the, I don't understand um, why so many in American youth soccer, especially, um, want to protect um, the, the, uh, the kids and, and shelter them, uh, from this type of exposure or competition, like, oh, they're so young or, oh, we've got to be careful with them. Like there's nothing better than modeling mentorship, transference, if you talk to players who, who come from other cultures, other backgrounds, 
um, about their experience growing up playing the game, I guarantee you 100 times out of 100 that you have those conversations with them, they played with kids that were younger than them, the same age as them, and older than them. They played with adults. They played with anybody that would play. It was never siloed off, and your entire soccer experience is to play with people that were born the same birth year or in in your grade. Uh, I guess this, you know, to the first question, this is why I don't even uh, care, honestly, about the whole birth year conversation because – um, I don't, I don't even think that the idea of putting kids based on birth year, um, is, is that big a deal. Cause I think we should be trying to find ways for kids to, to, you know, have those experiences where, you know, they go up against, uh, you know, others who are bigger, faster, stronger, or maybe they're more cunning, cunning and savvy, uh, have more experience. Maybe they're not as quick as you anymore, but man, they, they know what to do with the ball. And, 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 and you start to see a different way the game can be played. And, and, and so I just think there are so many positives, so many benefits. Yes, I get the whole idea of you don't want to put a, a child in an environment where they're going to get hurt. Okay, I understand that. But I'm not talking about extremes of throwing an eight-year-old out in, a, in an adult Latino game and saying, hey, man, go have at it. But this idea of, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old players playing in environments with adults um, you know, shouldn't be, um, you know, groundbreaking. It should be the norm. Like they, if you have a team in an academy uh, that you train and you go to play in tournaments or state cup or whatever, and you don't have a local league to play in, then why aren't you putting your U16s, your U17s, your U18s in these adult leagues and, and playing? Like, you know, that to me would be great for them. Uh, I don't see any any reason not to. Yeah, I, yep. So, we're on the same uh, page. <laughs> uh, before we before we go on, I want to uh, uh, bring up the graphic again. Our our Friday uh, live Q and A today with Chris Kessel. Uh, you can text questions to one eight four four seven eight nine eight eight four four. You can email questions to team at wrk.mn. You can also send Twitter DM questions to at Daniel Workman. DMs are open, so um, you know don't worry about that. If that's where you want to send them, I, we will get them. Uh, so you can text to one eight four four seven eight nine eight eight four four. You can email to team at wrk.mn, or you can send Twitter DM questions to at. Daniel Workman uh, as well, and uh, we'll bring up our our next question, um, which is uh, this: Is there any government oversight of the United States Federation? It seems like there should be. It shouldn't just be another wing of the Soccer United Marketing MLS monopoly, and if not. What would it take to bring more accountability oversight to the U.S. Soccer Federation? Um, so the first part of that question um, is, you know, 
is there any government oversight of the U.S. Soccer Federation? Chris, uh, what are your what are your thoughts on um, you know there being or not being you know is there any oversight uh, for the federation? Uh, there is from the USOPC, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee um, has oversight of U.S. soccer. Now, how much oversight are they actually providing is, you know, something that's up for debate right now. But uh, that that is who is theoretically providing the oversight for the Federation from the US government. And um, I personally think that the uh, US Soccer Federation is not living up to all of the things that they're supposed to be living up to from US OPC, you know, rate, you know, regulatory, you know, vision of what's going on. And I know that Hope Solo won her lawsuit, you know, concerning that very thing. And, um, you know, when she took, you know, took the Federation to court about, you know, certain things that they were supposed to be doing and that they weren't doing. It's the Ted Stevens Act is, you know, what gives, you know, uh, you know, what uh, the actual law is that governs it. You can download it. It's really not a large document. You can download it and read it. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's all there. I, I, it's, I'm not a lawyer. I've talked to a lawyer about it who went through and read it and kind of analyzed the whole situation. And they felt like the same way I did about uh, some of the items that I didn't think that they were living up to, but they weren't exactly sure who had standing to bring a lawsuit about those items. And um, if it would take an actual, you know, former Olympic team player, current Olympic team player, or just it, 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 it's a confusing situation about who could actually bring a lawsuit. But um I think that it would take contacting your, you know, representative in Congress, you know, to to take a look at it. If you want to help bring more pressure upon the Federation to do what they're supposed to do, you know, Congress would would definitely have the ability to um, <clears throat> to to make change, you know, to make them change. So, you know, con if you've got a, the ability to talk to a representative talk to them, bring this to, you know, their attention, you know, obviously know what you're talking about and show them exactly how it, you know, they aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing and, uh, and, and help bring pressure to bear. So, um, if you go through us soccer's bylaws, basically to, you know, build off of what you were saying, they lay out, um, and, and you can, find their bylaws. Uh, and if you can't find them, just, you know, send me a DM. I'll send you a copy. Uh, it's, it's not a problem. Um, they talk about in bylaw 103, uh, as well as in bylaw 105, that their uh, status as a national governing body obviously comes from FIFA, as you mentioned. Uh, they also uh, have uh, membership through CONCACAF, which is a uh, 
the confederation. So the FIFA basically kind of splits the world into, uh, you know, I think it's six groups. Um, if I remember correctly, um, you know, with UEFA, CONCACAF, CONMEBOL, etc., cetera. Uh, and then uh, under CONCACAF, which is North American, Central American and Caribbean countries, um, the the United States uh, Soccer Federation is uh, you know a part of Concacaf and and part of FIFA. They also get their um, uh, you know status within within the U.S. Uh, as recognized by the Sports Act, which is uh, as you mentioned the Ted Stevens Act, um, and that is um, through the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee um, and. Uh, in in bylaw 105 they they actually talk about um that the federation uh shall be autonomous in its governing of the sport of soccer in the u.s and may not delegate its governance responsibilities uh there are so many things in their bylaws where i i think you could point out that they don't they don't actually follow their own rules um and in section three of that uh uh, uh, bylaw 105, uh, the Federation shall provide equal opportunity to athletes, coaches, trainers, managers, officials, and administrators to participate in amateur soccer competitions. Um, please tell me how the Development Academy uh, that has been recently terminated or, or any of the other amateur programs offered by U.S. Youth Soccer, uh, U.S. Club Soccer that may have uh, non-sporting merit um, entry into those competitions uh, as uh, something that's allowable. Again, there's so many things we could go through on that. Um, I think the bottom line is to sum up uh, the governance and oversight um, in the second part of this question, what would it take to bring more accountability and oversight to the U.S. Soccer Federation uh, is simply this, that uh, there's there's two main things. Um, well, two main things I think need to happen, but three uh, there are three ways. One is already happening. So that's why I'm not going to say needs to happen because it's already underway. So that one that's already underway is, is the legal challenges. So we've seen that uh, with Hope Solo uh, going to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. She's also um, brought uh, her own suit uh, before the U.S. Women's National Team even started theirs um, about the equal pay, equal treatment situation. Um, you have the U.S. Women's National Team lawsuit, the NASL lawsuit, the uh, relevant sports lawsuits. You have all these legal challenges to the status quo way that U.S. soccer has been doing business. So that's that's one one area that's already happening. So we don't have to say, well, that needs to happen because it's already underway. The two things that need to happen, uh, one uh, one area is internal and and so oversight internally needs to come from the membership so uh, that is policy proposals bylaw proposals um, we saw this at the AGM. There were uh, quite a few uh, policy proposals. West Virginia um, was uh, was part of that uh, brigade with the uh, Equal Voting Act uh, for professional leagues, uh, based um, on on uh, you know sanctioning and not uh, having gender discrimination. Um, 
and and there were others. Illinois adults uh, were were another one that that put forth uh, some bylaw and policy proposals. That that stuff needs to continue um, to to be a check and balance from within oversight and accountability from within the federation from its members, uh, and and going public with things that you know happen that that uh in the past has been you know talked about whispered about quietly i think now's the time to to begin to hold them accountable the membership go public and hold them accountable publicly you know when something happens that doesn't look right or isn't you know following the the bylaws or policies go public with those things go in go to the media go public be brave and be willing to speak up and and say what needs to be said uh is one is one internal government or 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 oversight type of deal um and, and from a governance standpoint that is that is part of being a federation member you have that ability to do it from outside external government oversight is as you mentioned, con- contacting your your congressperson, uh, your senator, um, and others who you know have the ability to come over the top of U.S. soccer through the Ted Stevens Act and maybe even other laws to to basically rein them in or force them to adopt some things that that you know they can't set on their own, like. For here's an example, and and you know a what, what some within U.S. soccer would say is an extreme example, but um, you know I'll just use it hypothetically. If the the Ted Stevens Act was changed to say that every sports organization in this country had to have uh, open admission to every sports league that they govern based on on-field results, i.e. promotion, relegation, sporting merit, U.S. soccer would have no option except to adopt that policy because that would be government oversight that had come in from over the top of them saying no more discrimination, no more picking who gets to play in your top leagues. This is how you have to do it. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen or is or is likely but that is something that could happen from the outside they could also uh you know going back to the earlier birth year question they could go into the ted stevens act and say that all olympic programming has to operate on an august 1st to july 31st uh calendar and and all of your player registrations and team groupings have to follow the the kind of basic academic uh calendar at that point Again, U.S. soccer would have no choice but to go back to the uh, scholastic uh, calendar uh, of age cutoff um, because the Ted Stevens Act does provide that oversight over them through the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee that they would be forced into those changes. So there are things that could be done. Is there somebody sitting with a gavel just watching everything U.S. soccer does and is just, you know, ruling on every ruling they give? No, uh, that's not happening. And and I don't know that 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 would ever happen. Um, you know, that would have to be, I think, a pretty extreme um, augmentation of the Ted Stevens Act for that kind of body to be a proactive accountability oversight body to U.S. soccer. But as we've seen in the past, 
members of the Federation have been called to Congress to, um, you know, testify. And I think those kind of things could continue. I think the, 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 the alterations to the Ted Stevens Act are a very real opportunity to, uh, to see some oversight and accountability and things change uh, going forward. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on that, but I, I think those are some, some, you know, three main kind of, if I was to, to reduce those down, you have legal, you have membership internal, and then you have the Ted Stevens Act and Congress uh, that all in their own ways can provide accountability and oversight. Uh, some costs way more than others, as we know with the legal challenges. Uh, and then, and, and some don't, cost as much, but uh, are, are very difficult as well, uh, as we've seen from uh, some of the policy initiatives uh, undertaken in the past. So, uh, Chris, do you have any uh, any additional thoughts on that? Uh, the only thing I want to say is, is your, your, to your second point, even if you're just involved at the lowest level, you know, at your local club, you can still you know, via your state organization or U.S. club soccer or whoever you're registered through, uh, help bring to bear pressure on the federation by pressuring your state organization to become more involved in that internal oversight process in that being a change agent process. And if you don't get the kind of response that you think should happen, then you need to become a leader within your organization so that you can then go for, you know, put forth that pressure, you know, don't expect somebody else to do this for you. You're going to have to be one of the people that, that makes this happen, go and run for leadership positions, no matter what level they are so that you can participate in this, you know, reform process. I agree. I agree. As, uh, as we continue on before we go into the next question, uh, I want to go on and bring back up, uh, that you can send your questions. You can text them into one eight four four seven eight nine eight eight four four. You can email questions to team at WRK.MN and you can send, send any Twitter DM questions to at Daniel Workman questions are continuing to come in and we are going to continue uh, soldiering on uh, through these questions uh, and, and we appreciate the feedback as well as the, the, the topics and questions that are uh, coming in. So again, those are your options there on the screen to text, email, or send Twitter DM questions. And we will try to get to as many of these as possible today um, as we are um, going through uh, the show. And uh, on to our next question, uh, which is um, the, the question is wondering if uh, the MLS announcement um, surprised um, U.S. soccer on their the MLS DA announcement. Um, is this something that they that Major League Soccer is kind of winging, or and there's no real plan, or uh, do you think that MLS um, you know had a plan and uh, and this is, this is part of a, a bigger plot and strategy, uh, you know, kind of wh where do you fall on that, uh, Chris? 
so f- from talking to some people, and I think it's pretty common knowledge that the MLS wanted out of the DA or wanted massive structural changes to how the DA ran. We saw that with the fact that they tiered the system, you know, with, you know, all the MLS academies in one tier with just a smattering of non-MLS DAs and then a second tier. So I think it was pretty apparent and obvious that they wanted out of the game. You know, they wanted out of the DA. They wanted their own thing. They wanted to be in control of it and everything. So I know that that was happening. But now, was there some collusionary aspect of the timing of the closing of the DA? I don't know. But I have a feeling that the pandemic gave cover to making a hard decision. You know, instead of the Federation doesn't like making hard decisions, you know, they they do not show leadership in many things. And I think that this hard decision, which I think was the correct decision, the DA was not working. It was expensive. We weren't getting eight to ten million dollars a year of value out of this spend. And um, I think that this gave them cover to make this hard decision. And then the then MLS used that as, oh, this is exactly what we wanted anyways. So they then made their announcement. You know, I'm sure that they had forewarning of it. I don't know how long, but I do actually believe that this was from talking to some people. The board of directors did not know this decision was coming down even two days beforehand. So um, I do believe that Will Wilson came in and made this decision. I don't know if Cindy Parlow Cohn supported it, the president of the federation, but I do believe that he made this decision and now MLS has jumped on it like, okay, here's what we want to do. And now they're growing that idea from here. I do not know if this this hard decision and in my opinion, correct decision um, uh, to chain, you know, to cancel the DA was, you know, worked out collaboratively with MLS. Now, the problem that I do have with how this went down is, is that U.S. soccer didn't have the second step, which is what comes afterwards. They didn't have that planned and laid out. And how are we going to, you know, move everything forward? Now, that's that's where my problem lies in this whole process. But I actually am not buying into the conspiracy theory that um, this was something that was planned, you know, a long time ago by a bunch of actors within the Federation. You know, this is more of a there's new leadership and they used the pandemic to make a hard decision that they otherwise probably wouldn't have made, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. And um, I, I would say my thoughts on this have been a little fluid. The more I've talked to people um, in terms of, you know, MLS's role in all this, I think there's, I think there's a couple things going on here. The first is um Taylor Twelman pointed out that the cancellation, the termination of the DA 
Uh, he tweeted this out the other day when all this became official that he'd been hearing about this for six months, that, that this was not a big uh, uh, secret, that, that this was something that U.S. soccer was considering. Um, many, you know, many say we're, we're wanting to do, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I, from that standpoint, I, you know, think that anyone who said it's COVID-19 is the cause of the termination and in, in U.S. soccer's own uh, statement to me is very disingenuous on, on that part. Um, it may it may have given them the cover to pull the trigger now, but this has been something that's been talked about for a while. Uh, you pointed out that there were board members and others that, that you know, didn't know. Um, and, and many within U.S. soccer at the DA levels that didn't know uh, were not included in the decision-making process. Um, and, 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 and that is unfortunately part of the culture that has to change in order for the Federation to start operating better. Um, the, the MLS side of this, they're no dummies. This is something I try to tell people all the time. As much as I disagree with a lot of the things Major League Soccer does, their worldview of of artificial scarcity through control power, arbitrary uh, you know sanctioning that gives them privileged status within uh, U.S. Soccer, um, you know there are a lot of things there I disagree with. One thing you cannot say about MLS, in my opinion, is they've been smarter than everybody else in American soccer. They have figured out ways to leverage their positions, um, to to uh, do things to to get the status that they have and do the things that they do. And and so they're no dummies. They're not. They're, these are not. Uh, dumb people that are doing things. They're very, very smart. They're very, very cunning. They've been playing chess while the rest of America, when it comes to soccer, has been playing checkers. Um, they're, they're on another level in terms of their operations to get the things that they want. Um, whether we think that their cam gam spam is, is a chess move, uh, you know, it's them trying to geek out and figure out ways to, to, to find some kind of com- competitive balance or whatever that they do that look that's their thing and again there's a lot of things about mls i disagree with but you can't say that they're not uh, smart people they're very smart and so when they heard the rumblings and you know that they heard them just like every if everybody else is starting to hear them they were hearing them then you know that they're going to start having some type of either contingency plan or a proactive plan and what i'm hearing is MLS was always looking towards its own league where the winging it part comes in from what I'm hearing is uh, the, the fact that U.S. soccer pulling the plug now and MLS looking at this going, um, well, there's a, there's a big gaping hole. Let's go and get more. So, the winging it part is them figuring out exactly at this point now, what is it that they do? 
Um, who do they choose back to their arbitrary decisions? Who do they choose to come into the league with themselves, their system that they start? You know, do they try to um, connect with youth organizations in the country like U.S. Club, U.S. Youth and others? Uh, and and what what type of system or system of leagues or, or you know, uh, academy program do they form? That part, I think, is in flux. I don't think we know those answers. I don't think they know those answers. But in terms of the the overall, like, big idea of MLS having their own DA and coming out with an announcement, uh, you know, minutes after U.S. soccer's announcement should be no surprise to anyone who pays any attention to American soccer. They were going to have something in the hopper, even if even if it wasn't a well thought out uh, plan that they could unveil, they didn't have a presentation. They didn't roll out cue the promo video. Here it is. And here's the link to go sign up to get your team. They didn't have, they didn't have that, but they, they did have a statement ready. I think the most embarrassing thing of this whole uh, MLS uh, statement was the fact that, that they, they go through talking their kind of vague, ambiguous, uh, you know, comments about having their own Academy it's going to do whatever and take the sport forward and blah, 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 and garbage, garbage, garbage. And again, I tell people, don't listen to what people say. Watch what they do. Watch what they do. And in this case, if you look at what they did, they talked about, you know, they're going to have this league and that. And then what they did at the very end was, oh, crap, we've got to cover ourselves. Oh, and we might do something for girls, too. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> you know, last line <laughs> of the of the letter. And, and it was like, you know, oh, by the way, uh, yeah, 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 we might do that, too. Um, you know, it, women's soccer is, is not a is not a priority for them. And in in that statement said as much. Um, and this is what happens when the when U.S. soccer says that we're not going to to be in the D.A. business uh, for now. We're getting out. Um, the Federation has an obligation to serve its members. And there are a lot there's a lot of debate on whether they did that well on the girl side uh, versus the boy side. When it comes to MLS running a development academy, they have no obligation to do anything with the girls at all. Um, and, and nor do they have an obligation to do anything period or for anybody that's non uh, MLS. So just keep that in mind when you're looking at what's going to come, this giant void in us soccer, um, you know, did something that, that I'm not a big fan of. If you're going to shut something down like this, the, you don't want to leave uncertainty. I talked about this on, on the show a, a week a, or so ago. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, they've created a power. They've created a power vacuum by, by you know, absconding from the responsibility. They've created a, created a power vacuum. And everybody knows that if that nobody is taking leadership, somebody's going to become the leader. You know, and if you say... We're the United States Soccer Federation, and we don't want to be in charge. Somebody's going to be in charge, and we already know, and if you pay attention, MLS is going to be in charge if you're not in charge. And, you know, over the last decade or more, MLS has become more and more in charge of everything. And um, that's that's what's happened here. And unless the Federation does something 
you know, like they put out MLS put out the statement, just like you said, it's it's not fleshed out. It's not a full program. You know, now were the optics super bad that, you know, 13 minutes after the initial statement comes out, MLS comes out with their statement. Yes. And it, it looks bad and it looks like they colluded together and whatever. But I really don't think that they did here. But um, MLS is going to take over. But the good the only good thing that can happen from this is U.S. soccer has some time to get next year's program together if they decide oh we made a mistake by not having something going forward now they just fired 40 percent of the staff yesterday and i don't know who's going to come up with a new plan but hopefully they they looked at this and they see the feedback and they see the power vacuum they've created and the scrambling where are our teams going to play and you know, every organization, because it wasn't just MLS that came out and said, oh, we're going to do this because USYS put out a statement about their elite league and how they've got this and how they've got that. And ECNL, you know, started accepting tons and tons of teams, formerly of the DA. And, but you know, and now the conflicts between a bunch of the clubs on the girls side because of, of what the girls DA did to ECNL a few years ago, you know, are starting to come to the forefront you know, everybody is scrambling and everybody's putting out statements because there is no leadership being shown from the Federation. Hopefully, you know, if Will Wilson is willing to make big and bold changes, such as ending the DA because it wasn't giving the kind of return that a seven to ten million dollar a year investment should give on the player development side and firing, you know, multiple high level staff members and a big chunk of just the total employee base of the Federation. Hopefully this is saying that this is a new day within the Federation and he'll come through and say, all right, you know, whatever staff members are left, I need a plan. Now you have a week to get something together and there'll be an announcement next week or next month for what's going to happen next year. And a lot of this talk and just statements being made and whatever, he'll notice that, I've created a power vacuum. I didn't maybe think this, you know, all the way through, but at a million dollars a year, you know, over a million dollars a year, you would hope that people would think things all the way through before they have big radical action like this. But hopefully he'll see that this is how this is going to work. And he, you know, misdiagnosed the the landscape of youth soccer in this country and will have another statement and will have a plan and something positive will come from this. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that uh, there's a giant power vacuum, and I think the the decisions that are being made at the moment, uh, some of them necessary. Uh, my problem is not oftentimes in situations. I've and I've seen this even with local clubs. You make a you make a decision to go in a different direction, um, and in that that decision in isolation may be the right decision, but there, the, the new path, the new direction, what comes next has to be addressed. You don't, when, when, whenever you're go, leading an organization through change, just from a leadership perspective, when you are leading an organization through change, you're already creating uncertainty, 
just by going, hey, look, we're not going this way anymore. We're going this way. What you don't want to do is compound that by not having clear vision of where you're going next. Because everyone may agree, hey, this was a bad idea to get in this boat and, and, and be heading south, you know, towards Cuba. Uh, it, but we, we don't know where we're going now. Like, we, we're not going to Cuba, but where are we going, right? And, and now the boat's going in a different direction. So uh, the same thing with an organization. You may, as an organization, go, look, it, we don't need to do this anymore. This is not a good idea for us. And everyone in the room may go, you know what? You're exactly right. That is, we got to change that. But you have to then go, okay, here's what we are doing. Here's where we are. Like, it, I have no problem with Will Wilson, and and I think the letter, you know, stated it had three names. So we have to assume because the letter had three names that it, that those three individuals, at the very least, all knew. We can't get on another conference call here with Will Wilson and Cindy Parlo Cone and there and 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 Cindy going like I, I had no idea this was happening. Right, her name's on the letter. So Will Wilson. Cindy Parlo Cohn and Ernie Stewart, all three names were on the letter about the termination of the DA. If you're going to come out with that letter and you say this program is over effective immediately, okay, fine. Fine. I got no problem with that. But tell the people, here's what to expect. If you're running a company right now in the middle of this pandemic, and you're going to go, hey, look, like, uh, for example, I, I was listening uh, to to one of the guys from from Lyft talking about some of the things that they that they were trying to work their way through with some of their Lyft drivers during the pandemic. And they said, look, we understand that the, the rides may not be a, as many as you're used to, to providing. And so for anybody who uh, needs extra hours and, and extra work. And you're probably not going to get those right now uh, because we're, we're mainly transporting essential workers, et cetera. Then we have, we have pre proactively, we went to Amazon and set up a special page where you can kind of get first in line to get, uh, you know, the opportunity of, of picking up extra hours working at Amazon during the pandemic. And, and they did some other things like that, like creating a whole new service and whatever. And, and I'm, not, I'm not here to like beat the drum for Lyft. I'm using this as an example of how leaders should lead when they're forced to make tough decisions. You don't just say to your Lyft drivers, hey, sorry, guys, you're screwed. We hate it, but you know, it's over. And hopefully one day you'll come back. That's not how you lead an organization properly. If U.S. soccer is going to go, hey, all of you families who have paid thousands of dollars to play in the DA, travel in the DA, participate in the DA, it's over. And oh, by the way, we don't have any news for you other than the fact that it's just over. That's not good leadership. There should have been, when that conversation was had about terminating the DA, here, here is, like, there was not even a webpage on U.S. Soccer's website to go, here, go here for more information on what you and your club need to do next. 
No, not even suggestions. So when, when you're going through this situation and you're looking at, you know, how things should be handled, uh, in, in uncertainty, you don't want to create more uncertainty than you need to. You're already going to create angst by terminating the DA. Don't compound it by not having some guidelines or provision or vision for what the future may look like. That's my bigger issue here, not the termination of the DA, but the more uncertainty, the power vacuum uh, that you mentioned uh, it, that, that, that took place. So, um, uh, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with, uh, with more here in just a minute. And you can continue to text your questions to one 789 You can email your questions to team at WRKMN. And you can also uh, send your Twitter DM questions to at Daniel Workman. Um, you know, DMs are open and we are getting... Uh, 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 ton, tons of questions uh, coming in. So uh, feel free to uh, to do that right now. We'll be back in just a couple minutes uh, after a word from both of our uh, sponsors, ductickbrand.com, where you can use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your order, as well as Charity Water, who provides clean drinking water to people all over the world. We'll, we'll be right back with our live Q&A with Chris Kessel right Right after this. should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything that closed or you could know that you'd made a difference you could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family of a community of a region there was either clean water or there wasn't 
We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. into the show thanks for tuning in had a few uh technical difficulties there over the break uh, trying to get some things sorted out here but uh, i think we're back up and running and uh before we get back into our questions you can continue to text email or send those questions and um and uh we will put uh that information back on the screen uh here for you to see text questions into one 789 email into team team at wrk.mn or send twitter dm questions dms are open at Daniel Workman, uh, and we are uh, uh, going through our, our live Q&A. We're back here with Chris Kessel uh, to kind of pick up on our next uh, series of questions, um, and uh, and that is, uh, the first is, can, um, can you guys explain solidarity payments and training compensation and the difference between the two? Uh, Chris, you want to take a stab at it? Um, so training compensation is paid to the training club upon a player signing their first professional contract and solidarity payments are paid to, uh, the training club or the clubs that had 
um, the player from the age of 23 and under upon their transfer out of the country. You know, so they're 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 two things designed to to help protect smaller clubs from having all of their play their best players taken, you know, for free by bigger clubs or from, you know, uh, not to protect that. I think that's the wrong word. It's not to protect. It's to to reimburse them for, you know, this. And then the solidarity payments are to reward them for developing, um, you know, developing, you know, the best players, you know, that are out there. So those are the differences, you know, just in 20 seconds, the difference between the, the two types of payments. Yeah. The, the easy way to think of it is, is your, your training compensation uh, is typically domestic and solidarity. Like it's not, this isn't exact, but it's just an kind of a general, just to wrap your heads around uh, solidarity payments are generally international. So, um, you know, whenever you're looking at, um, you know, a, a young player that goes, uh, from, um, let's say a smaller club in England and then signs with Liverpool or Manchester city upon signing their first pro contract, the, those clubs are responsible for paying a, in, 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 in each country, they have kind of a pay scale of how this works. So this is uh, a situation where they would have some kind of kind of generally prearranged schedule and then the clubs can dispute it saying, well, no, this player is, is actually special and we deserve more consideration, etc." And those will go to what I think in England, they call them tribunals uh, to determine some of those things. And then the, your solidarity, solidarity payments, as you mentioned, um, is uh, some of the things that we've seen recently with some American players who have gone over to uh, Europe to play, those clubs are, are supposed to pay their, their clubs that develop them. Um, it's 5% of their, uh, you know, signing or transfer, uh, basically signing on fee basically is, is the easiest way to think of it. And, and that gets based and parsed out on the number of years they were with your club, etc. And it's why, Honestly, it's why one of the one of the issues where U.S. soccer has really messed up over the years is been um, in in player identification slash registration of players because they've made it uh, way more complicated than it should be. Every player should have a national player ID card and they should be in the national U.S. soccer database uh, with their player ID card and their player passport, um, which are are both documents that are needed for international transfers. Um, and it would, it would, it would definitely, I think, reduce some of the confusion whenever you get into these sanctioning organizations. And that's a, that's a, a different, um, a different, uh, thing than the, the sanctioning. All right. So sanctioning, uh, would be, you know, us club offers you sanctioning and that includes insurance and a player card, and that gets you access to their programming, and any programming that is marked open uh, within the U.S. soccer ecosystem. Same thing for U.S. youth soccer, U.S.ASA, etc. Um, that's that's sanctioning. 
But the ID card, uh, think of it like a driver's license for a player, uh, as well as their their player passport. All of that information is, is a federation responsibility under FIFA, and uh, and they've not uh, handled those duties very well, and and that is uh, why some of the um, uh, solidarity payment issues. Uh, have been complicated. The DeAndre Yedlins and the Clint Dempsey's and others where there weren't clean records. And that's something the Federation should have had. It's the clean records. That's a that's a different issue than sanctioning. We could get into a conversation whether the player cards that are national player ID cards should include sanctioning or not. Um, but that's not uh, necessarily relevant for um, for this conversation about solidarity payments and training compensation. Uh, second question uh, w- uh, along these uh, well, from the same person um, is, uh, do, do you, Chris, have any advice on beard-friendly face masks? Face masks? <laughs> no, no, I don't have any advice on beard-friendly face masks. Um, <laughs> you know, just just... <laughs> Just wash your beard every day. That's the that's my advice with it. Wash your beard every day. That's a that's that's a good good advice. I think uh, during uh, before and after the pandemic. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd get a kick out of that one. Um, next question: What are our thoughts on trying to create a separate federation instead of reforming this one? So you want to take uh, you know, a stab at it? Or you want me to go first? <laughs> I mean, I'll take a stab at it. Uh, it, it. If if you have about $500 million that you're willing to waste, then go ahead and start trying to make a new federation because that's what it's going to take. Because, you know, you even heard uh, Rishi Seagal from NASL and with Rocco Camiso money, who's willing to, to put up, tens of millions of dollars in a antitrust lawsuit even said that starting a new federation is, you know, a laughable proposition there. It would take nine figures to get a new federation started nine figures to fight all those lawsuits to lobby Congress. You know, we just talked about how the USOPC doesn't, you know, do the kind of oversight that it probably should be doing concerning the United States Soccer Federation. So, you know, you would have to lobby Congress and not just to have a hearing, but you would have to lobby enough people in Congress that you would be able to get something passed to make a new federation. Like I, that's, that's how I feel about it. And, you know, I know that I probably sound just like all the people that say, you know, oh, it's never going to happen when we talk about systemic reform. But uh, I'm not saying that it's, it wouldn't be possible, but I think that somebody like me or, you know, any other regular person out there, I don't think that that's something that is a uh, feasible solution unless you have somebody willing to put like not just big money, but like 
super big money behind it. But, you know, I, I mean, that's just where I am with, you know, starting a new federation. Yeah, I I uh, I generally agree with um, your view there. Uh, I have actually talked about before the the many hurdles that you would have to overcome. Uh, professional player contracts um, would be very difficult um, to to do for uh, players that uh, have national team um, prospects. Um, or for our um, international players, um, those two areas, which are you know generally going to be the 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 type of players that you would need and want to bring in to kind of kick off the league and say, hey, we're here and we're serious, um, and and you should take us serious, are are likely unavailable because of FIFA's rules banning um, players playing outside of the FIFA family. Um, that right there is, is a big hurdle that um, is needed to basically prove legitimacy. Now, um, the money aspect is another big piece of it. Uh, you've got to have substantial... Um, operations uh, because you've got a lot of soccer in this country that they may not be happy with U.S. soccer, but to, to, to think that you're going to start just having this cascade of movement to a new organization um, without some kind of financial enticements uh, is, is, you know, I'm sorry, that's just not happening. Um, they'll, they, they would rather deal with the mediocrity of today than go to the uncertainty and lose their, their, uh, you know, or potentially lose their, their place in the line within us soccer. Uh, so that's not going to be very likely either. The only way I think a new federation legitimately could happen would be pressure from the U S Olympic and Paralympic committee, as well as FIFA, uh, so the, the one scenario that I have heard repeatedly be the only option for this is a scenario similar to what's, uh, happened a few years ago with Argentina. Um, and that is if, if these FBI investigations, uh, and I had Ken Benzinger on the show, um, recently talking about this as well, um, in terms of, you know, they, they've, indicted a couple Fox officials. Um, they're continuing these investigations, the FBI. If the FBI ever um, is either able to, uh, you know, bring charges or, you know, find connections and makes those public or whatever, if any of that ever happened where it, it became, um, you know, a matter of public record, not speculation, but like legitimate, like, you know, uh, presidents and former presidents and executives at U.S. soccer are indicted, then I think at that point, you could have a serious conversation with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and others about how do you go forward? Uh, you know, is the organization in its current construct salvageable? Should a new organization be created because this is systemic, et cetera, et cetera? That is the only scenario 
where uh, you would have to, you know, have U.S. soccer in such a state of crisis, like it's on fire, it is burning to the ground, and it has completely lost the public trust. And I think that I think the main areas where that would would be uh, a concern for U.S. soccer standpoint of view, where there would be exposure, um, would be uh, in in a couple of areas. One would be, uh, as I mentioned, all of the bribery um, charges that are that those investigations that are still ongoing, the the wire fraud and, and money laundering charges. If those connections came back to high level U.S. soccer officials. And they get roped in. I think that I think that's uh, a potential for a new federation, or at least a legitimate conversation could begin about forming a new organization to handle that. Uh, another area would be um, it, in terms of the political climate uh, of. You know, obviously, they've gotten a, a lot of blowback recently on their treatment of the U.S. Women's National Team. If if situations like that with gender discrimination continued, um, and and you know, or or got worse to a point where um, you know judges were stepping in and, and issuing um, you know edicts and judgments and uh, injunctions, etc then I think that's another area with public pressure where people would go, okay, hey, look, they, they, they just, they don't care when anybody says they're going to do what they want to do. Then I think at that point, there's some political pressure. And the other area would be similar to what happened under the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee with USA Gymnastics. If you found that the federation, um, and, and this, I'm not talking about a club within the Federation. I'm not talking about a coach within the Federation. I'm not talking about, uh, even one of their sanctioned members like a U.S. youth soccer or U.S. club soccer, AYSO for that matter. I'm talking about the Federation itself. If it was found to have systemic child abuse, that and 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 like a child trafficking or child you know abuse or whatever it that's part of you know the culture of the um uh federation and operations of the federation then i think at that point that would be another potential for um you know changes so uh we'll we'll have to see but uh you know i don't think it's it's likely and I don't think at this point it's worth the the effort to do it um, as an external um, uh, project. All of that being said, I have one giant caveat. Thinking of what you need to do to create a new federation is a healthy exercise on how to reform and how to do what you need to do to fix American soccer and do. And there are ways to, to begin yes. to do that from within the Federation. So um, mm-hmm. I have, I have spoken to people at us soccer about uh, uh, this issue. When, um, when, when the lawsuit from AYSO, uh, against the Federation concerning youth soccer and USYS happened uh, decades ago. U.S. soccer had the choice and, and, and U.S. youth soccer had the choice to basically become one organization. 
And had they become one organization, we would not have any other sanctioning organizations in this country. All sanctioning would have come directly from the Federation and AYSO and later U.S. Club Soccer would have basically been simply programming organizations. We organize tournaments, we organize leagues, we organize this, and our leagues and our setups are better than your leagues and your setups, and then you come play. But uh, the actual player ID card, the actual sanctioning piece, would have been directly from the Federation for every player. Now, that's what should have happened. It didn't happen. And, and so what we were left with was U.S. soccer basically, um, you know, using these sanctioning organizations to sanction players, allowing these sanctioning organizations to sanction players. And I'm, uh, there's a word that, that's escaping me, the uh, uh, delegate. They delegated their duties uh, to these organizations. And so they said, hey, you have the power to sanction players. And so U.S. youth r- remained a separate you know, 501c3 from U.S. soccer. So AYSO was granted the same privileges. U.S. club soccer came along. And what a lot of people assume is that that alphabet of organizations, USYS, US Club, US uh, AYSO, um, SAY, USSA, all of these are involved in, in, in the sanctioning process, as well as USASA, US Adult Soccer. New sanctioning organizations, even as recently as this uh, past AGM, uh, can be added to that alphabet soup. And you can create your own programming and your own sanctioning of how you want to, you know, sanction and do soccer. So this idea of creating a new federation would be a great mental exercise, but I think the way to proceed and get more traction would be to actually pay the $10,000 and 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 get the clubs uh, from these different states that align with your vision to coalesce, come together under this new sanctioning organization, and you run your own programming, and and you, you go that way. Um, and I think uh, so. The idea of thinking through these things are good. I don't necessarily uh, think that at the current uh, moment. Um, that it's a good idea to to realistically um, go and, and say, hey, this federation's terrible. Uh, let's start a new one, and, and we come from the outside. I do think you could think of it as, as a new one from within, um, but I don't think uh, it's realistic to try to do it from the outside. Um, but the big key here, if you want change, you have to do it and model it. You can't just talk about it. You have to do it. You have to model it. You have to find others who are like-minded and do it. Uh, just like you guys at West Virginia said, we don't like the voting policy, so you did something about it. You sent in a policy revision. You sent in multiple multiple policy revisions. Ultimately, they rejected them, but you tried to do something about it, and, and I know you guys are going to do it again and, and come back with an updated version to, to hopefully get this thing through. That's how you get change. It's not just to get up and talk about it. It's to actually do things uh, about it. Um, Our our next question is, um, what are your thoughts on the relationship and the um, 
coexistence, connections, whatever, uh, between the new CEO, Will Wilson, Cindy Parlocone, and Stephen Malik. Um, all three with uh, North Carolina FC connections, either through the academy or the pro team, um, but basically all kind of connected in that way. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on, on this, uh, triad of, of a relationship? Uh, you know, you want to take that look good. (laughs) Yeah, it it doesn't look good. I, you know, that, and, and that's something that just over and over and over and over again, just things don't look good. You know, I know that all the time, you know, people like myself and yourself, we get accused of being conspiracy theorists. You know, oh, it's a conspiracy. Everything's a conspiracy. Look, it doesn't look good. I, I mean, it's just that simple. Like when when three of the most powerful people within soccer in this country, you know, within all within a month you know, two months all take over positions within U.S. soccer as president, CEO, and a board member, and on the professional council, you know, all come from the same club and are all tied together. That doesn't look good. I, I mean, like, I, there's no other way to say it than, than that doesn't look good. You know? I, yeah, I, I agree. I've never, I think I've never actually talked to two of them. So like, you know, the, the optics, um, were not good and they continue to be, to be, um, puzzling at best, uh, especially when you start to talk about the timeline of how we got to today. Right. So, Alec Papadakis is is on the board at the AGM right after the board. He's removed from the pro council and replaced by Stephen Malik, who comes back on the board weeks later. Um, you know, Carlos Cordero is is forced out uh, as president of U.S. Soccer, replaced by Cindy Parlocone. And uh, like a week later, there's an announcement of Will Wilson as CEO. Um, and, and, and we're off to the races. So, um, you know, I think, you know, looking at the optics, um, it, it's definitely concerning and, you know, it's why organizations, we talked about uncertainty before, uh, in terms of, you know, when you make a decision, make sure you've got your follow-up or your next steps in place so you can lead people through change in a good way. Um, it's why organizations need guardrails. They need bylaws and policies and, and, and conflicts of interest policies that have teeth to ensure that, okay, look, Will Wilson may have been the best candidate for the job. Nobody can say that he, that he wasn't with certainty. What we can say is that if he is the best candidate for the job, then make sure that if the optics aren't great, that there is some level of trust in the organization from a bylaw and policy standpoint, conflicts of interest standpoint, and others, that you're bringing in the guy who you think is going to do a good job 
and regardless of pre-existing relationships is not going to be able to just do whatever he wants for the people that he prefers. Um, and so you have that back to the accountability oversight that gets built into the DNA of the culture of an organization. So in, in, in this regard, that's why the optics to me are doubly bad because U S soccer doesn't have a strong conflicts of interest policy. Uh, when it comes to financial decisions, when it comes to this decision, when, when you have a decision where the stakeholders are not even part of the conversation. And yet you and I both sat and listened to the board of directors complain about Illinois uh, adult soccer's um, proposal to publish the professional league standards uh, in the bylaws and policies. And, and, and one of their big uh, complaints, Sunil Galati brought this up in the board meeting uh, and, and others uh, echoed this, was that the professional leagues didn't have any input on the proposal. Like they needed to be consulted to send in a policy that affected them. You just canceled the DA for thousands of kids over the country. Mm -hmm. You just canceled it. And And you never talked to their clubs. The committee had no idea. (laughs) You you didn't talk to the youth committee. Yeah. I mean, that's, and, and they published that it, you know, the, the thing that's, if, there was a long track record that the Federation, you know, goes out of their way to make sure that they do the right thing and they look out for all of its, you know, members and everything. The optics on a lot of these decisions wouldn't be as worrisome. It's just that there is a, right. you know, a long history that they don't do the right thing. They don't look out for everybody. And it's easy to um, see that this happens that these optics are super worrisome because when you look at this pattern, you say, okay, well, the last time something like this happened, something bad happened. So something happens now is, is there going to be another foot that drops now? And to, to poo poo people's idea that they shouldn't, that, that they're worried about this and you shouldn't be worried about that. Like, why would they do something like, look, man, you're not, you're not really paying attention to how all of everything works or you're a beneficiary of how things work, you know? And, and that's one of the other things that we have to, that, you know, you have to worry about is who is saying that you shouldn't worry about that. And, um, hopefully, I mean, hopefully like, look, Optimism springs, you know, hope springs eternal. And I hope right. that that Will Wilson does an awesome job. Like, and I think that that's something that people don't really understand about people that want to see change is, is I don't want to complain about this stuff. I want it to work right. You want it to work right. Everybody right. that's out here complaining wants it to work right. And hopefully Will Wilson coming in and looking at it and say the DA's broke, we're getting rid of that. You know, we don't need all these staff members. X, Y, Z is not doing right. You know, uh, you know, so I'm going to fire a bunch of people, you know, the glass door, we're getting rid of HR, you know, the glass door review. So I'm firing the HR person, you know, like hopefully he's came in and has a good understanding during the interview process and his research and everything of these are a bunch of things that are broken and I'm going to get rid of that. And, you know, but this is the big, but, you know, we have no 
history that says this kind of stuff's going to happen within a federation. So can the, these are the two things that the, the two pathways where are we going to continue down this pathway of, you know, insiders looking out for insiders or did we actually get somebody who is going to say, no, 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 we're going to run this the way that it's supposed to be ran and go that way. I mean, I don't blame people for looking at these optics and saying, man, this is just more of the same. I don't I don't blame them for that. I, I hope they're wrong. I hope every single one of the people who say that are wrong. I, I truly, really do. Right. I mean, you know. Yeah. I, the 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 easy the the not easy the the right thing to have done in this whole DA termination is to have gotten on a conference call with all of the DA uh, clubs and said, "Hey guys, this is where we're at. This is this is the issue that we're facing, and you know, may not change the decision that U.S. Soccer ultimately made." But having people just hang in the wind for days without any feedback and any uh, official involvement in the process, it, that's a problem. And I hope that Will Wilson and Cindy Parlocone learn from this so that in the future, they are more inclusive during the process as well as dealing with the aftermath after the process. Um, next question is uh, for um, uh, both of us. Um, they said, uh, first time caller, I'll hang up and listen. Um, this is their question. <laughs> uh, what has more power? What has more power in American soccer? A, the U.S. Soccer Federation president, B, the U.S. Soccer Federation CEO, or three, Chris's beard? Huh. You know, unfortunately, you didn't tell me until, like, you know, last night that this was going to be a video chat. So, you know, I'm looking super scruffy today, so my power level is, is way down. It's way down. You know, ah, yeah, um, but <laughs> so beard is off the table. Uh, the it's a great question. You know, the we me and you have had that. I don't know if we've ever talked about this on one of our, you know, public conversations, but we've we've definitely had this chat before about the power of the president of U.S. soccer. They're just one vote on the board. You know, they don't have the ability to unilaterally do a lot. I mean, you know, I'm, you know, I'm the president of a couple boards and, you know, set on a couple other boards and, you know, the president sort of just runs the board meetings and has a vote and has the ability, you know, to set the tone and the direction of an organization, but they can't force through things. It's still a political process at the board level and they are just one vote. Now the CEO uh, is who, you know, implements the day-to-day -day actions that the board says, this is what we want to happen. So they quite often have a lot, a lot of leeway on how things are implemented. Because if I just give you, hey, go cancel the DA, you it's up to you to figure out how to cancel it. And, and you know, it are, 
are we going to communicate? Are we not going to communicate? You know, they have a lot of leeway. So within U.S. soccer, the the CEO position, I think, is um, people under undersell how powerful that position is. And they oversell how powerful the position of president of U.S. soccer is. You know, you have a lot more pressure on you, I think, as president of U.S. soccer because you're the face of the organization. Um, but that's a great question, you know, and I, and I, I actually don't know what the answer would be. So technically, in an org chart, the president hires and fires the CEO. The CEO can't hire and fire the president. So from a technical standpoint, the president is, um, um, basically higher up the food chain, right? They, they technically have more power because Mm -hmm. they are the person that along with the other board members that the CEO is accountable to. What I do think uh, was skewed uh, of recent years was the way that Sunil Galati operated as president. He was very much the uh, public face of U.S. soccer. Dan Flynn did not mind being, um, you know, uh, behind the scenes running day to day. And Sunil uh, enjoyed the um the public um you know spectacle of being president uh he he enjoyed um you know being very hands-on as president uh some would call him a micromanager very much involved i think it's why a lot of people in the 2018 election kept asking the question should the presidential position be a paid position because they were looking at it from the way that uh, Sunil Galati operated. He was very much hands-on, very much um, involved in a lot of the day-to-day. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, it, a lot, I think, depends on how you approach it. Um, but uh, at the same time, uh, from the technical standpoint, the, the president is more powerful than the CEO. But I, 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 to your point... To to uh, diminish the power of the day to day operations role, a decision making role. I think we've seen how how much power a CEO can command in an organization in what has happened in the last few days. Um, you know, Will Wilson uh, is the one who stepped in and goes, "Boom, done on the on the DA." And yes, he he had to have uh, the support of others within the organization. Uh, but you know, doing something is better than than not doing anything. Uh, when when there are a lot of things that need to get fixed, and sometimes could it make it worse? Yes, but you know, he took action, and uh, and that's what you would hope that a CEO would try to do, even if it's the wrong action. I, I would rather them try something than being paralyzed. Uh, with indecision. So uh, both are powerful roles. Both uh, have the ability to affect change. Um, and and uh, at the end of the day, um, 
the way the organizational depth chart, te- you know, uh, flow chart is uh, constructed within U.S. soccer. Technically, the president uh, can hire and fire the CEO and not the other way around. So I think that's the technical answer. But I think to your point, both have a lot of influence in the direction of American soccer. Next question, would, would, uh, what should U.S. soccer do to identify talented youth and develop them, especially in rural areas or low income areas? Well, you know, I, obviously, you know, coming from a rural area and, you know, working with a lot of low income kids, I've put a lot of thought to this. And, um, you know, I, I've come to a conclusion over the last couple of years and it doesn't the way that things are structured now, it doesn't really matter. Like if I have five kids who are awesome and they're like 13 years old. Like, let's say, you know, I have a golden generation of local players here and they're the best players that have ever came from here and they're youth national team level players and whatever. Without the money that would be necessary to support them on the day-to-day club soccer level, it doesn't matter if they get identified like they're screwed no matter what. If we find some youth national team level player in Idaho, I mean, unless somebody is going to move them to a, you know, a city with one of these, you know, elite academies or move them to a, an MLS city so they can play in their academy and have it be free and cover their travel and everything, there, there's nothing that can happen. That's that's because of the structural built in inequality of how uh, youth soccer works in this country. You know, if we spent 20 million dollars a year on better scouting and found all the best 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds in the country. okay, we found them. I mean, like there's there's nowhere for them to go. They're locked out of the system, whether or not we scout and find these kids. It doesn't matter, you know, unless, you know, we structurally change how what how they are able to access the system after that. Right. Uh, so a couple key points that you brought up um, that I, I, I agree with and I, I want to build on uh, first is I the uh, the the structural changes go into identification scouting as well as as you pointed out development um you know before id during id after id has occurred of a player um and and i want to kind of bring in uh, a comment from uh Uh, John Johnson uh, on Twitter, who said, can we not get to a system in youth soccer where kids stay and play local and then our so-called elite players are selected to play on regional or state teams from time to time instead of forcing kids from their club to an elite team with all the costs and travel, um, which is kind of back to the structural issue. I think um, our, our friend John Townsend, um, you know, has a really good point uh, on this. And that is when we look at structure and, and, and changing the structure to, to support better ID of players. um, I, I think the idea of having regional 
training centers uh, in in regional, uh, I think, in the case of the United States, should be uh, viewed as a as a as a minimum of fifty five regional training centers, one in each state association boundary, um, would be a good start uh, in terms of having regular programming. Spain uh, does this and they build it into their calendar, um, you know, where clubs know on this day of the week or, or this day of the month um, that no programming takes place because the regional training centers uh, are, are in action and they're bringing in the best players into those um, events uh, or training opportunities. So I think, uh, I think structurally, uh, if we want to get serious about the ID part of the equation for uh, any kid, regardless of their socioeconomic status uh, or, or geography of where they live, um, the first piece is to address the ID thing is, is an idea similar to what John's talking about is, is putting out these, uh, you know, regional training centers. And in my view, regional needs to be thought of at the youth level as a state uh, boundary uh, for the state associations. There's 55 of those state boundaries because California, Texas, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York each have two state associations um, uh, to cover the amount of registered players. So um, you have Cal, uh, California, Texas, Ohio are all north-south divisions in, in Pennsylvania, New York, or east-west uh, divisions. Um, and so in those scenarios, um, having those those ID centers uh, on a state boundary, state association boundary level um, that brings in kids regardless of your affiliation. You could be, you know, playing in a uh, an unsanctioned league. You could be playing in USYS. You could be playing in US Club. It should not matter. This should be a federation uh, operation that's going out trying to bring in the best kids that they can see and scout into these uh, 55 regional training centers and keeping tabs on the players. So the ID part, that's one area where I think structurally there should be a move to, to that uh, format and programming. The development piece structurally is an issue that is far beyond where we are at the moment, uh, and that is supporting the ID of, of players and the development of that ID player. We have gotten crazy in, in what we have, have allowed to take place uh, in the youth soccer space. And uh, there was a thread yesterday um, that uh, I retweeted, and I'll, I'll try to mention again, but it, it went through kind of um, you know, where, um, where we are, uh, today and where, and how we got here and, and talking about, you know, how these, these local, uh, organizations, uh, kind of developed their select teams. And then that kind of morphed into these elite teams. And then these elite teams became elite clubs. And then these elite clubs said, in order to be elite, we got to travel farther. You know, that gives us the prestige that we're elite because we don't play anybody local. We just, we go five hours to play somebody else because that makes us feel better about ourselves. So you have all of, you have this mentality that's going on. So the structurally that piece has to change in order to make it more accessible. You cannot be asking families mm-hmm. to, to spend the kind of money uh, to do it. So I think, uh, I think that is uh, to me, 
where we got to look at for that. Uh, next question, and we're going to kind of try to wrap it up with a few of these kind of rapid fire questions, uh, Chris. So, um, so we're going to go go through a series of these as as quickly as we can uh, as we wrap up today's uh, show. Um, when was the last reported audit from U.S. Soccer? Um, do you do you know when that occurred? Uh, the the last audit of the financials you know, was presented right after the AGM. Yeah, it usually happens on an annual basis. Um, It's not necessarily a forensic accountant from outside. This is an internal audit, organizational audit. Um, And I know that they do get, I think, some outside. Yeah, they hire an external auditor. I mean, they have an internal okay. auditing process from the VP, but the the actual audit that's submitted is from an external firm. Right, right. Okay. Uh, what I meant to say is that the 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 forensic accounting um, audit is kind of a that's a whole nother enchilada level that does not happen regularly with U.S. Soccer. It's yeah. more of a standard formal. Um, you know, oversight audit of the federation. So, sorry, I misspoke on that one. Um, next, uh, next question. Um, what are the odds that U.S. youth soccer and the ECNL at least try to find common ground and come together and form regional coalitions? Are there really that many leaders who are against that? The odds are um, really, really low, like negative <laughs> fifty. And uh, yeah, the leaders are there. Many leaders who are against them. Uh, pretty much every leader in their in their fiefdom is a, is against um, ceding control of their fiefdom to someone else. That's my take on it. Yeah, I mean, U.S. Youth Soccer already has regional leagues along with a national league. And, the you know, U.S. Club Soccer exists, you know, to, ch- to compete against those. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's just a bunch of competing, you know, thing. Paul Kennedy put out a, a great stat yesterday. He researched it and he found that there were over 200 boys U-17 teams playing in national leagues. You know, so that's obviously enough for 10, 12 regional leagues right there. And if you add in just a few of the best regional playing leagues, you have 10 or 12 great regional leagues all across the country, no national travel. But that would take a bunch of people working together and being kid centric as opposed to adult uh, ownership centric of the organizations, whether they're profit you know, for profit or nonprofit, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, there a lot of things could happen to change if there was just leadership from the Federation, because the Federation could step in right there and fix that problem in a heartbeat, but they're just choosing not to. Um, the, yeah, so I, I, I agree. And, and I think that the, you know, the, the real issue in terms of, uh, of that is, is that this has been allowed for so long. I don't see, uh, number one, U.S. soccer stepping in um, and forcing these changes. Uh, and number two, 
I don't see those who um, have uh, the incentive that, you know, against cooperation, i.e. we're running our own programming. Um, You know, that would that would um, be a, a big ask for them to say, we're going to uh, stop what we're doing from a programming standpoint to do this uh, collaboratively. I, I just don't see that happening. Um, and, and, uh, and I, you know, as much as I think the Federation uh, should organize one giant system of connected leagues, um, you know, I don't think, U.S. Youth Soccer, U.S. Club Soccer, AYSO, U.S.A., and every other Alphabet Soup organization is going to do that themselves, um, and and I and I don't think it's reasonable to expect them to do it or or ask them to do it because I it just that's not been their track record, um, and that's not been what they have uh, been about. Um, so um, you know, look, I think we've covered a lot today. Um, and uh and talked about a lot uh in terms of youth development id um you know where we're at in terms of uh the organization um and uh you know will uh will wilson and and the relationships that he had pre-existing before he came in and you know uh, all of that i i just want to say at the close of this um, I, I, I feel confident speaking for, for both of us when I say that what, what we want to see is the good of the game uh, held as the top priority uh, to make soccer accessible to everyone, uh, regardless uh, of your socioeconomic status. Um, and, and the best way to do that um, it, that I have ever seen is uh, is is to make it sporting merit based and not, uh, not, uh, financially merit based. Um, and so, you know, whenever, um, we look at the Federation and, and we talk about what needs to happen or what needs to change or, you know, um, you know, what should the next steps be? It's always from a position of trying to improve the game, not necessarily personal vendettas or agendas of, you know, like I hate this person or whatever. It's not that at all. I just, I just want to see the good of the game uh, be the, the priority that uh, and, and the prior uh, prior um, priority motivation for you, the, the, um, reason why you get up in the morning um when you're in a leadership position that's where to i would hope you're coming from and uh you know i've said it many times i i think soccer's mission of making uh uh soccer the the preeminent sport in america doesn't go far enough we should set as our mission to become the greatest soccer country on earth and how do we get there how do we envision that what can we do to make that happen uh, I think a connected system of leagues is is a necessary uh, piece of this. Uh, I also think this idea um, that we referenced a few minutes ago about uh, trying to, at the youth level, uh, reduce 
the burden of travel and expenses on families should become a priority. And I know a lot of people in the youth soccer uh, complex don't want that to happen. They don't want to hear that. They don't want the ecosystem to change because they make some of them a lot of money every year uh, based on the current landscape. But the facts are, if we're Mm -hmm. serious about the development of our players and the development of our country, there will be opportunities for you to make money like you're making now, but it needs to come differently than the way you make it right now. You should not be getting, if you're in Chicago, you should not be driving to Michigan to play teams. You're in freaking Chicago. You should rarely ever have to leave, you know, the Chicago land area to play to play uh, competitive matches. Um, there are millions of people there, uh, and and around the country, for most people, not everybody. I can't help it if you live in Montana or Wyoming and other countries that are more out west where you have kind of some hot density population zones in a city, uh, in a state, but then you, you got to drive more than a couple hours to get to uh, the next kind of hot zone. Okay. I can't do anything about that. But for much of the country where our population density does allow, you should not be driving more than two to three hours for a match. Uh, on a weekend, there should not be stay and play to play high level soccer at, at, uh, at a at a youth level. Barcelona players are playing locally. They're not they're not flying all over Spain and they're not flying all over Europe on a regular basis. Do they do it on occasion? Yes, and that's why uh, I try to teach this this principle to my kids. And I think it's a principle we should adopt when we look at at structure, system, policies, etc. For U.S. soccer, when the exception becomes the rule, that's when we have a problem. It's okay to have a national championship series or a, 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 a rare you know, travel uh, uh, situation where a, a, a team is fundraising to go to the you know, Little League World Series. They're fundraising to go to this event. Okay, I, you know, I got no problem chipping in and, and giving a kid some money because this is his, maybe his one shot to go to you know, a, a national event. Okay, fine. And I think communities would get would would get behind that because they would they would look at it the same way. But what's happened in, in American youth soccer is that exception has now become the rule. And we've priced out way too many families. We've made it way too expensive. And what are we getting for it? What is your player getting for all the money they're paying? What are you getting? You're you're not getting world class development because that we can we can see that's not happening we're not we're not uh exporting and producing you know amazing world class players at the international level so we're not paying for that so you know when you when you look at what we're doing how we're doing it um i think a giant rethink that goes uh with a a priority of local Let's reduce travel as much as possible. Let's make it merit-based. Let's make it accessible. That needs to be the priority going forward 
And whether that's a U.S. club, a U.S. youth, or somebody else that says, hey, we're going to pick this up and make this our mantle, or some new organization comes along that says, we want to try to do soccer the right way and connect clubs together with the same goals and, and, and ambition, then fine. But that needs to be the path forward for youth soccer, not more of this get on an airplane at 14 years old to play one match kind of thing. That it, that should be the exception, not uh, the expectation to, to play at a, quote, elite level. If Barcelona is not getting on a plane to fly all over Spain and that country is, is a fraction of the size of the United States, then we shouldn't be asking our kids to do the same thing. And I'm pretty sure Barcelona is doing a decent job at producing players compared to the U.S. So, uh, Chris, do you have any last thoughts as we wrap up today's live Q and A? No, I, you you you, you uh, closed us out pretty good right there. Um, you know, I'm in agreement. You know, it, uh, it it you know, a lot of people just look at the cost of club soccer and they just look at it as you know, say, oh, well, it's you know, two thousand dollars a year to to play. You know, it's you know, people should be able to save and afford that. That's not that's discounting the ten thousand dollars that people have to spend to travel every weekend and stay in hotels for two or three days and expensive hotels that they've overpriced because it's a stay of play and you know and the required just all this all these costs that people don't really think about and how it locks people out and. And local soccer is what we need to be striving for, uh, raising the floor, okay, raising the lowest level that players, you know, play at. If we raise the floor, then the kids that are up high have to raise their game also. And more local play options, you know, and we'll end up with better players. I mean, it's just at the end of the day, the more players we have playing at a higher level. And this is, and when I say more players playing at the higher level, I mean, even the kids who are, you know, only playing for fun, which I hate that because, you know, that's not what's happening. They're playing to win and they're playing with their friends and they want to beat their friends, you know, back to the conversation we had earlier. But if we can get those kids playing at a higher level, it helps every single person in this country that, is worried about youth development and it gets them playing longer and more often and they have more enjoyment out of the game. And, you know, and that's what all this is about. If, if we are literally trying to be this best soccer nation in the world, we need to have as many people enjoying the game for as long as possible. And that's all of the millions of kids in this country and not just this 0.006% that compete at the DA level. You know, thanks for having me on this morning, Daniel. I, you know, we talked about this yesterday. We wondered if we were going to go for a little over an hour, and here we are, two <laughs> hours and ten minutes later. And I think with sitting in. Yeah, look, I think we could keep going, but uh, we're going to wrap that up for today because I'm sure there's a lot more we can do on a future uh, live Q&A show. Uh, but uh, I appreciate your time, Chris. Uh, keep up the great work. Um, and, um, you know, look, the, the, the path to, to getting where we need to go as a country uh, is going to require people to come together uh, who are like-minded. Not everyone's going to be on the same page. We know that. Uh, but, uh, those who, who are, we should, uh, we should be trying to find common ground and forge a path forward together. And, uh, hopefully that, uh, 
in this uh, time of uncertainty uh, with the, the elimination of the DA and everything else swirling around, hopefully this is a time where some uh, like-minded folks can uh, find some common ground and, and build a better way. So Chris, thanks for, thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Hope you, hope you have a great weekend. Stay safe. And, uh, and, and for everybody watching who sent in questions, uh, thank you, uh, for, for your comments, your feedback and your questions. Um, and, uh, we look forward to continuing to address these topics on future shows. Uh, appreciate it. Hope everyone out there is staying safe, uh, as well. Have a great weekend. We'll see everybody on Monday.